may be seated. And uh, we're going to go ahead and keep it moving. So children 10 and younger, you can just quietly make your way upstairs. Kids, volunteers, go ahead up. We're going to keep moving this morning, guys. Who is worthy? Amen. But the great I am. So this morning, guys, we're going to be continuing with part two of our series titled Too Busy for a Seat at the Table. So I want you to go ahead and grab your Bibles and open up to Luke chapter nine, the end of the chapter. Luke chapter nine. If you guys remember from last week, I know it was seven whole days ago, whoo. Dan laid out the foundation for the upcoming weeks by presenting to us this problem of busyness. Our society is ingrained in a way of life that is simply too busy for Jesus. And consequently, our churches and the people in them have been progressively conformed to that same busy way of life and have been spiritually withering away. Even in this church, right here, us, all of us battle busyness every day. We all battle this issue to varying degrees. If you remember some of the quotes that Dan shared, there's one in particular um, that I'll share in a second, but this busy way of life, if you remember, it leads to this perpetual anxiety and exhaustion. It's just always there. And we're always trying to keep up, right? We're just feeding into that anxiety and that exhaustion. And ultimately, that type of life produces shriveled up fruit of skimming through life rather than actually living it in abundance the way God intended. So that one quote, I just wanted to share it again, it's from Rollheiser. He says that a number of historical circumstances are conspiring to produce a climate within which it's difficult not just to think about God or to pray, but simply to have any interior depth whatsoever. That's the climate that we live in right now. And all this busyness, this anxiety, this exhaustion, it results in that illustration that Dan gave of the spring being tightly wound up and it could unravel at any moment. You can see that tightly wound spring start to unravel in the story of Mary and Martha that Dan shared last week. As Martha was distracted with much serving, as Mary was sitting with Jesus, her busyness turned to bitterness, which then spilled out into confrontation, right? How many of you guys have felt that? Your busyness turns to bitterness. I want to take just a minute to tease out that idea of much serving. The text says that she was distracted with much serving. I just want to talk about that for a second. Martha, specifically in that text, the much serving was the preparing of a meal for Jesus. She was distracted by preparing a meal for Jesus. That's a good thing, right? Preparing that meal for Jesus, that's a good thing. Here's the thing, though. Busy Christians, just like Martha, are distracted doing good things with good intentions. Remember, it was even that act of service that enabled Mary to be with Jesus, right? So in some way, something good came out of that serving. But I want to just mention, when you flip through the New Testament, it becomes really clear that the Christian life is actually all about being busy with serving. That's all throughout the New Testament. The Christian life should actually be characterized by much serving. Think about Jesus' own life and ministry. Even uh, Friday night had a wonderful time on Friday night. If you weren't there, come next Friday prayer. Um, it's a blessing. But on Friday night, Dan shared two of these texts that I had in my notes for this morning. Think about Jesus. In John chapter 13, he's about to go out and be crucified. 
yet he stops to go around and wash the disciples' feet, right? And he commanded them to go and do likewise. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus says, I came not to be served, but to serve. Think about the times that Jesus was healing crowds of people late into the night, and people just kept coming to be healed, and he kept healing, and he was exhausted, much serving. Think about the time where even Jesus' mother and brothers came, and they wanted to be with him, but there were so many people pressing around him that they couldn't get to him. He was busy with much serving, seemingly all the time even. The Apostle Paul then, as you continue in the New Testament, he wrote often of laboring and toiling and straining, even with, he says, pressure and anxiety for the churches. Paul was a man who labored with much serving. So the Christian life here as an exile in this wilderness requires laboring. It requires toiling and much serving. We're commanded to be always abounding in the work of the Lord, right? In other words, if you're a Christian, you should be busy. But the question for today is busy with what? So last week, we were in Luke chapter 10. We're going to take a step back today, Luke chapter 9. Let me just set the stage for a minute. Leading up to this point in the book of Luke, Jesus has already been making waves with all the leaders, right? All the religious leaders, even the political leaders, he's making waves. He's been teaching publicly with authority. He's been demonstrating power. He's even been calling into question the practices and traditions of the Pharisees. He performed miracles like calming the storm, feeding the 5,000, raising a girl from the dead. This is the type of stuff that Luke is documenting as we go through the gospel. And Jesus has even made claims to be able to forgive sins. He has made a stir. Even King Herod was perplexed by this point and wanted to know more about who this Jesus was. And so through all of those events, as you guys know, Jesus established himself as a controversial figure, right? You guys know that he was controversial in his region, in his society, he was controversial. And he made it clear to his followers that this tension and this controversy, controversy was going to cost his life. And so rather than laying low, as we come into Luke chapter 9, what does Jesus do but he raises up 12 others to go out and do the same thing. He's amplifying the message. He's not hiding out, right? And so he sent them out to do the same works and to teach the same things. And so by the end of Luke chapter 9, where we're coming in today, Jesus had begun this journey to Jerusalem. It was that fateful journey where the tension would come to a head with his arrest and his crucifixion. And so this section of Luke from chapter 9 all the way to 19 is called the travel narrative because it, it discusses the teachings and the things that he did while he was making his way from village to village to Jerusalem where he would be crucified. And throughout the teachings in this travel narrative, keep that in your mind, he's going to Jerusalem. His face was set, the text says. There's a theme that comes to the surface that Luke actually works really hard throughout the book to bring to light. And here's the theme. As Jesus traveled with his face set towards Jerusalem, his priority was seeking and saving lost sinners. That was what his face was set towards, seeking and saving lost sinners. And so it's with that context in mind that we jump in to verse 57 this morning. Go ahead and look at your Bibles. Luke 9, 57. It says, As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. 
But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Would you guys take a moment just to pray with me that the Lord can open up this passage to our hearts, that it might transform us. Lord Jesus, I pray right now, um, when it comes to busyness, Lord, I pray that, that you would help us to connect with what you want to say to us, Lord, that we would have our antenna up, that we would be able to hear from you. Spirit of God, would you speak directly to our hearts and reveal the ways that we need to change and transform, and then would you do that work in us, Lord? We want to be sanctified. We want to be close to your heart and near to your side. So, Spirit of God, I pray that you would come now and, and work in us as I speak. In Jesus' name, amen. If you look at your Bible, there's uh, section headings throughout the passage. And I don't know about yours, but mine says at the beginning of verse 57, the cost of discipleship. The passage that we're dealing with today deals with the cost of following Jesus. And as you look at this text, it becomes clear that Jesus is bringing these potential disciples to a point of decision. As each one of these three individuals encounters Jesus, they're faced with the question, is following this teacher worth it? Should I reallocate my time and my attention to follow him and go wherever he goes, or should I accomplish my other goals first? Keep that in mind. It's a point of decision. And so the first guy, look at verse 57. We're going to jump right into it. This first guy has already taken a step to follow Jesus because he's on the road with him, right? He's clearly gone out to hear and to see who Jesus was. And based upon Jesus' response, he probably hasn't yet fully evaluated the cost of really following Jesus because he just blurts out, I'll follow you anywhere. That's a bold statement, especially when you rewind a few verses and you see that Jesus and his disciples had just been rejected by a whole village. And he's saying, I'm going to follow you anywhere. In the immediate context, Jesus was moving from village to village. There was no guarantee of safety. And not only that, Jesus knew that he was headed to his crucifixion. And he knew that in the coming days, his followers would be persecuted. They would be treated badly. They wouldn't be safe. And so he responds with fair warning in verse 58. He says, even the foxes and the birds have a home, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, Jesus says to the man, if you're going to follow me, it's probably going to cost you the basic comfort of having a safe place to sleep. Is that the path that you really want to pursue? Is that path worth it to you? And we don't have any indication what happened with the man. We don't know if he followed or not. The text doesn't say, but right away, Jesus turns his attention to another in verse 59. And he says, follow me. He beckons another to follow him. And the response is an interesting one. In that culture, the, the burial of a loved one was an incredibly sacred and holy tradition. It was a religious ceremony that was very important. And so many agree that this man's father probably wasn't even actually dead yet because had his father died already, he wouldn't even be out there with Jesus. He would be at the funeral preparations already. But he responds and he says, I need to go and bury my father before I can follow you. And so what many scholars uh, think that Jesus is doing here is 
um, the man is actually saying to Jesus, I need to go home and wait until my father is dead. Maybe he was dying. We don't know. But the fact is the man was giving Jesus an indefinite length of time. I'll follow you after I go and do this thing. I don't know how long it's going to take. And Jesus' response kind of seems harsh, doesn't it? Look at verse 60. He says to the man to go and leave the dead to bury their own dead. In other words, following Jesus is life, and turning away from him is spiritual death. But now in verse 61, the third guy says to Jesus, I will follow you, Lord, but... That's the phrase right there. How many of you guys have heard that? I will, but... That's the catchphrase of American busyness right there. That is the catchphrase of what we're going after with this series. I will, but... Let me first say goodbye to my family. This actually takes us back to the story of Elisha and Elijah. Do you guys remember that? 1 Kings 19. Elijah comes into the field where Elisha is plowing, and he calls him to follow. And Elisha says, can I first go and say goodbye to my family? And Elijah says, go. Elisha then takes the yoke off his oxen and sacrifices the oxen as he burns them on the yoke and gives the meat to his family. And then he follows Elijah. It's an interesting story. But this phrase takes us back to that. And Jesus responds to this phrase by saying that my call is even greater than that of Elijah's. My call is so important that anyone who puts their hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for my kingdom. To turn back now would undermine the importance of this invitation. So in each of these three interactions, the individual concerns were good things, right? Physical safety, burying your father, honoring your family. Those are good things. Each individual had something valuable that they desired, and they wanted to accomplish those goals with their time and their energy. And those were things that Jesus would have even commended as righteous to honor your father and mother, right? That's one of the Ten Commandments. Jesus would have honored those good things. Yet they're still brought to a point of decision, and they're forced to make a choice about what thing is most valuable. They're facing the same dilemma that Martha faced. Should I continue serving in a way that I think is good, or should I leave everything for this moment to be with Jesus? When you glance at this passage and you read Jesus' responses to these three individuals, it could be easy to think that Jesus is kind of overbearing or demanding based upon what he says. But here's the point. I want you guys to get this. This is like the heart of what I'm going after this morning. He wasn't rude. He wasn't unconcerned with their families. He wasn't selfish and stubborn. He was using strong language because this moment carried immense urgency. For each one of those three individuals, there was a real possibility that once Jesus departed, they may never see him again. Once Jesus moved on, that was it. This was the most important moment of their lives, not because of what Jesus was calling them to do, but because of who was asking them to do it. Just let that sink in for a minute. This moment of decision about what is most valuable carried that urgency because of who was doing the inviting. This was the same man who said, if anyone would follow me, he must take up his cross and deny himself daily. It's the same man who said, if anyone would follow me, he must lose his life for my sake. If anyone would follow me, he must leave behind houses and land and family. If anyone would follow me, he, he must renounce all that he has. That's the type of invitation that Jesus extends, right? This was also the same man who went about, wherever he went, proclaiming the kingdom. Even in his invitation to these three men, he says, you go and proclaim the kingdom. 
If you put your hand to the plow and look back, you're not fit for the kingdom. He was talking again about the kingdom. And Jesus, in that moment, was calling them out of one type of busyness into his type of busyness. And the busyness of the kingdom was so much more important than any other type of busyness entirely because of who the king is. You get that? It's all about who the king is. The king of days, the king of majesty that we just sung about, the king of kings was standing before them in the flesh, calling them into his service. The Messiah, the son of God, God himself, the great I am, was standing before them, offering them a seat at his table. But the seat at the king's table costs everything. It demands wholehearted devotion because he is more valuable than anything or anyone else that we could give our attention to. His will is the only will that stands forever that cannot be thwarted, right? His purposes are the only purposes that will stand. His agenda is the only one that matters. And he now stands before them on his way to give his life as a ransom to save them. And he's urging them to leave everything to be with him, to recognize who he was, and to come to know him more on that journey. Do you see that internal point of decision that he brought them to? It's exactly the same decision that we face in the battle against busyness. Now, we're not pressed by the same physical and logistical urgency of Jesus actually standing here on his way somewhere else. Yet the urgency of his call still stands for us now. The urgency of his call is arguably even greater now that he's been crucified and risen and ascended to his throne. And now he's given us the assignment to carry on his work. In my opinion, that's even more urgent than him before the cross and the resurrection because he has tasked us with carrying on his work. He has called us to be the ones that go and do his work in the world. So there's a million things demanding our attention every day, all the time. I've got to do this. I've got to go here. I've got to get this done. Yet in the midst of all the doing and all the going, the king of kings is just as present before us right now and he's saying, before you do anything, will you come and be with me? Before you go anywhere, will you come listen to what I have to say to you? Will you learn what I want you to do? Will you take up your cross daily to follow me? Walking in step with King Jesus and truly following him in that way takes us from one busyness to another. Takes us from our own sense of doing things that we think are good with good intentions, and it zaps our attention back to him and his purposes and his will. His busyness is the good type of busyness, the good portion, as he said to Mary, that, that cannot be taken away. While everything else even good things with good intentions quickly become the type of serving that distract us from actually accomplishing the very thing that he wants us to do. In the documentary that the men watched a couple months ago, there was this quote by Dave Eubank. I'm paraphrasing because I can't remember exactly, but it goes like this. We're standing on a narrow path. And on one side, we can veer off into a world of immoral, fleshly desires that will keep us from doing what God wants. And on the other side of the path, we could veer off into a whole bunch of good religious things that Jesus never asked us to do. And in the middle, on the narrow path, he's saying, go. The ideal busyness is in the center of that narrow path. And it's on the center of that narrow path where we're only concerned with the king in front of us. We're only concerned with listening to him and doing whatever he asks. And so what exactly is it 
that Jesus wants us to be busy with. What does proper, good, right busyness look like? Look back at the beginning of chapter 10, in verse 1. After Jesus had that interaction, he then appoints 72 others. He sends them on ahead, two by two, into every town and every place where he was about to go. And here's what he told them to do. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And then he goes on. You're going out like sheep among wolves. You don't really need anything. Wherever you enter, say, peace be upon them. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on them. But if not, it will return. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking whatever they provide. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. And here it is, verse 9. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. Earlier in verse 60 of chapter 9, Jesus had already told a man to proclaim the kingdom. Verse 62, he refers again to the kingdom, having our hand to the plow. And now in chapter 10, verse 2, he refers to laborers going out to reap a harvest. These are all terms of work, right? They're terms of labor and toil and strength. It's going to cost you energy. It's going to make you tired. But remember that theme that Luke brings out in his travel narrative throughout his gospel. Jesus has come to seek and to save the lost. All of these kingdom busyness laboring phrases and words are about that work of Jesus in seeking and saving sinners. The labor of Christ's kingdom is the very labor of going after lost sinners and calling them out of darkness into light, announcing to them that their king, their Messiah, has arrived to save them. And we can't leave out the context of healing either. This wasn't just like, hey, go out and tell them there's a kingdom. This wasn't just like, hey, go mention the fact that you went to church on Sunday. No. The kingdom busyness and labor that Jesus is talking about here is to go into the darkness to the enemies of God who hate God, right? To go to them and proclaim that Jesus alone is the king. Jesus alone can save them. And he actually has already done everything required to save them. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, right? So that we could be justified by his blood and saved from the wrath of God. That's the message of the kingdom. When Jesus says, go and proclaim the kingdom, the king is here, this is who he is, and this is what he's done. Where's your sick? Bring them. Let's see how Jesus heals. Where are your broken? Bring them. Let's see how Jesus restores. Come and follow him because he is the path to life. He, as Jesus said, is the truth and the way and the life, and no one else can come to the Father but through him. It's that kingdom proclamation that Jesus was all about. That was the main thing for Jesus. He wasn't distracted by anything else. He healed. He delivered. He healed. He delivered. He preached. He taught. He healed. He delivered. And then he went to the cross and he gave his life to save sinners. I'm going to let you guys in on a little secret. Jesus is still all about that same thing. Did you guys know that? He hasn't changed his plan. He hasn't come up with some new idea. He's all about saving sinners, and that's how he does it, right? He brought heaven to earth with power and authority as the king of kings, the son of man. And then what he did is he raised up the 12, and he sent them to go out and continue his work. And then here in verse 1 of chapter 10, he sends out 72 others to go and do the work. And then by the end of the Gospels, what do we see? 
before he ascends to the throne, he says to his disciples, go and make more disciples throughout the world that do the same thing. And then, you guys know this, he pours out the Holy Spirit on Pentecost to clothe them in power as his witnesses to go to the ends of the earth to seek and to save the lost sinners. And here we are now. Right? Here we are. We're in the last days before the age to come. Here we are entrusted with the priceless treasure of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have that treasure entrusted to us. And he's empowered us and clothed us with his Holy Spirit that we might go with that treasure to the lost. That we might be all about the busyness of our king in calling sinners back to him. But we're too busy. We are too busy being distracted by so many good things, so many good gifts, so many blessings from God that are keeping us from actually doing what's necessary. We've got to work so that we can keep our house and our cars and pay for our schooling. We've, we've got to work so that we can continue to pay the bills, right? We can't lose our job because then we won't be able to stay in the same house or keep the same car or the same phones or go on the same vacations, right? These are the things that we think about, right? If we proclaim the kingdom of God, that Jesus came to save sinners and we need to repent, if we say that in our workplace, we worry that we could lose our job, right? If we say that to our coworkers, we fear that we could lose friends. And if we lose our job, then we lose our whole life and we have to rethink everything, right? If we prioritize our time to do kingdom activities, which are to go and proclaim the gospel and to heal the sick and to pray, then we're going to have to give up something else that we like so we don't do it. But all the while, Jesus is beckoning us. He's saying, follow me. Follow me. Take up your cross today and come and find out what I want you to do right now. Come spend time with the king. Come meet with me and hear from me and learn from me. Enjoy me. Be filled by me. Be satisfied in me. Find your joy and your purpose in me. And once you've done that, the next step becomes clear. The going becomes obvious. The doing becomes all about him and not about you. The harvest is plentiful. There are many sinners ready to be saved. You guys believe that? Sometimes I struggle with the lack of faith that people actually want to be saved. But Jesus said the harvest is plentiful. There are plenty of people out there who need Jesus, who want Jesus. But the laborers are too busy. The problem of busyness comes down in all of our hearts to what you value most in the moment. The problem is that we're weak, we're unstable, we waffle back and forth all the time, don't we? Am I the only one? No, all right. There's one other. <laughs> We're weak. We waffle back and forth. We want to follow Jesus, right? I think everybody in here wants to follow Jesus. We want to be with Jesus until we want something else more. It's all about what you value the most in your heart in that given moment. Seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness is impossible to maintain in our own weakness. It's impossible to always be about seeking God's kingdom first with our recurring lack of faith, is it not? But here's the most encouraging news for you and for me today. That's why Jesus gave us the Holy Spirit. Amen? He is our helper for exactly those moments. 
Jesus freely gives the Holy Spirit without measure to those who ask, right? To those who have trusted in Jesus for salvation and forgiveness of sins, the Holy Spirit is offered to you without measure. The substance of our busyness, either the distracting kind or the kingdom kind, will be determined by what you're treasuring most in your heart. And the solution to the busyness in the wrong way is to then identify what are those things of lesser value in your heart and your life that need to be denied. Self-denial is the key to the kingdom of heaven. Deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. We lay down our life for the sake of Christ. We take up his life, we take up his will and his desires, and that is exactly what the Holy Spirit does within us. One of his primary roles, and we've talked about this in Romans 8, his, one of his primary ministries to us is to awaken our hearts with love for God and for others. He bears witness within us, right, that Jesus is the king. He bears witness that God is our father, that we belong to him. He pours out the love of God in our hearts and awakens us to it. And it's all in order that we might be about what Jesus is about. That we might not be given to our weaknesses, but that we might be consumed with love for God. The Holy Spirit is working that in us. So if we're going to correct this problem of busyness in our lives, we're going to have to depend on the Holy Spirit with this, right? We're not going to do it in our own strength. And let me tell you what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5. Why don't you guys go and turn there? Ephesians chapter 5. Remember, we're trying to go after the substance of our busyness. Good things can distract us from the best thing. And all this comes down to stewarding a resource that has been given to us by God. The problem with distracted busyness is that we're misallocating a God-given resource, which is time. We're squandering the time that he's given to us to use for him, and we're using it for ourselves. And Paul says it this way in Ephesians 5, 15. He says, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And here's what he says, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Paul is all about being in the right kind of busyness, right? We have to make the best use of our time because the days are evil. That's another way of saying this call is urgent. Our work as his followers is urgent. The days are evil and they are coming to an end. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But, here it is, be filled with the Spirit. Do you see that connection? The best use of our time is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The best use of our time going on in verse 19 is addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody to the Lord with your hearts, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The solution to making the best use of our time is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You guys get that? It makes sense? See, when it comes to getting out of a distracted busyness into a busyness where we're fixed on Christ and Christ alone, when it comes to making that change, we can't just snap our fingers and like all of a sudden all of our problems go away, right? It's a tightly wound spring that we're, we're carefully unwinding it, right? 
And it's this very thing of being filled with the Holy Spirit that begins to unwind that tightly wound spring. It's the ministry of the Spirit in us who is stirring up a desire and a motivation for us to be about the kingdom. Because I don't know about you, but in my flesh, I don't want to go out like a sheep among wolves. I don't want to go out and risk everything in my flesh. But when I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, he brings boldness, he brings zeal, he brings an excitement to do the work of the Lord, and he brings joy in the midst of all of that, even when it brings persecution. Do you see how the Holy Spirit is like the underlying person that is making all of this possible? We can't do this without him. If you keep reading down in Ephesians chapter 6, one of the, the ways that people who are filled with the Holy Spirit act is rendering service with goodwill and a sincere heart. It's the very filling of the Holy Spirit that puts us on the trajectory of a good type of busyness where we're serving our king with goodwill and a sincere heart. And so let me bring it back to Mary and Martha. We don't know what if scenario, but imagine what would have happened when Jesus walked into their house and Martha had been busy preparing the meal for him. And instead of insisting on continuing to prepare the meal, what if she came in the room with Mary and fell down at the feet of Jesus? That's, that's what it's all about, guys. It's all about recognizing who is standing before us, calling us to follow. There's plenty of good things that he didn't necessarily ask us to do, right? Yet Jesus is all about this work of seeking after sinners and bringing them into salvation. And he's called you to be busy doing the same thing, laboring and praying for others to labor. And so what if we approached every day like Mary and act like the king is before us? I want to challenge you guys in closing. When it comes to our time and how we make the best use of it, like I said, we've got to start by being filled with the Holy Spirit. We're not going to come up with this on our own. We need God's help and motivation and empowerment to do this, right? But we have to start by recognizing what the distracting things are. Some of the distracting things are necessary. We have to earn a living. We have to eat food, right? Yet those things can still be distracting. There's other things that are distracting us that are not as good, and they're flat out a waste of time or even immoral or wrong. We have to take the time to sit down before the Lord and say, what is distracting me from being about your busyness? What is keeping me from following after you with everything, doing exactly what you want me to do? And guys, this takes time and intentionality. It takes sitting there and thinking about this and praying about this. Even get a calendar out and write down what fills your time. Because at the end of the day, allocating your time to accomplish certain things is a simple budget. We all have 24 hours in a day. How are you going to prioritize those hours? And in order to have an effective budget, you have to deny yourself of some things, right? If you have $10 and you're saving it for lunch, but you want coffee in the morning, you're going to have to take away from your lunch money to get the coffee, right? You have to deny yourself of something to get something else with a limited resource. And so in order for us to get anywhere, we've got to deal with the distractions. We've got to sit down and get them out there. Get them on a piece of paper. Get them in a note in your phone. What are the things keeping me from doing God's work? And then, as we're seeking the Lord and seeking his presence and being filled by his spirit, he will then direct us to how we should be spending that time, right? And so we're going to close here. I want you guys to bow in prayer.
because we need help with this. Like, we actually have to change something, right? Reminds you of that picture of putting your hand to the plow. It reminds me of Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus says, If anyone is burdened, if anyone is heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest because my yoke is easy. Think about that imagery of being yoked together with Jesus at the plow. The soil in this wilderness right now is hard, it's dry, and it needs to be tilled so that the seeds of the gospel can be planted. But Jesus is calling us to be yoked together with him. The busyness that he is calling us to is light because he is carrying all the load. He's even yoking us to himself Picture that wooden cross that he carried on his shoulders. We're being yoked together with that beautiful, glorious, if I could say it this way, that heavenly ox that is carrying all of our burdens. We're yoked together with him by that cross of wood that he was nailed to for your sins, to forgive you from your unrighteousness. And he's yoked us together to be about his business. The work of Jesus for us is light. The busyness that we find elsewhere brings anxiety, it brings exhaustion, and ultimately it burns us out. But when we remove those distractions, when we are filled up by the Spirit of God to do his work, There is lightness, there is joy, there is freedom. It's the same thing we've been talking about for weeks now. It's the abundant life of bearing fruit in righteousness for our king. There is freedom and joy in that. So we've got to deny ourselves the distractions and pursue, here it is, the presence of the king. The moment of decision for those three potential disciples was all about the fact that they were standing before the king. Were they going to act like he was the king or not? Were they going to honor him as the king or not? When you're faced with the distractions of everything in life, every moment of the day, we've got to come into the presence of the Lord and honor him as the king who is before us. And so, Lord, now as we close, I just want to pray that this this burden that you've put on my heart, that that we would forsake everything as you've called us to, Lord. I pray that 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 burden would be caught by my brothers and my sisters, Lord. That this urgency to be about your work, Lord, that it would resound in our hearts. Even when we're in the workplace, Lord, we're called first your followers. However we make our living is secondary. So, Lord, I pray that we would be bold in proclaiming the gospel in the workplace, in the school. Lord, help us to be bold in proclaiming that you are the Savior. Wherever we go, whatever, if we have an appointment, Lord, I pray that we would be bold in proclaiming the gospel to whoever is in that appointment. Lord, when we're at the store, wherever we go, Lord, it's all about your kingdom, your righteousness, your glory as the king. And so we need your Holy Spirit to fill us up. We need you to help us remove the distractions. Lord, bring those distractions to mind, even right now, Lord. We got to get them out. We got to get rid of them. Bring them to mind. Whether it's entertainment, sports, whatever, overtime, work, extra time away. Lord, I don't know. The distractions are endless. Social media, our phones, all of it. There's so many opportunities for distraction. And Lord, we need you to just put them before us and say, leave it. Leave it behind. 
We can't be filled with the Holy Spirit when we're filled with everything else. So, Spirit of God, I just, I honor you. I invite you. I ask for, for you to do this work in us. We just need your help. We need your help, God. Pray that you would do this work among us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. is a problem. Holiness is another. I, I, I don't, I, I'm struggling to articulate this and I don't want to, but I, it's like the Lord is just like, the Lord cannot dwell. He will not. There is willful unholiness. I don't say that to burden you. I don't say that to strike unhealthy fear in you. I don't try that. I don't say that to be just religious. I'm saying it because as a pastor, I contend for your soul. And if I don't say it, that I'm actually doing you more harm than good. Holiness matters. Willful unholiness, willfully quenching the Holy Spirit. We looked at it from Romans 8. It brings death. It brings death. It brings death to relationships. It brings death to depth of life. It brings physical death. Willful unholiness is just not acceptable. You may be like, why are you bringing this up? We're, we're a church family. If you're visiting with us, you're in on a family moment. <laughs> We've been doing this now long enough, pastoring, where we know when things aren't right within a church family. And not because we know it. It's because actually we don't know it, but the Lord is not blessing. He's not giving his presence. He's withholding it. Because when we gather together, we are his body. And where there has been willful unholiness within members of his body, the whole body feels it. He is our head. <laughs> if one of my members in my physical body is rejecting my head, do you think my whole body will know it? <laughs> yes. Right? So, the whole idea is this. I'm not saying, if there's little things going on in your life, uh, I'm not saying, well, I must pull away. I'm saying, you got, you got to pull an Elisha that was mentioned earlier. Elijah goes to Elisha and says, all right, man, it's time to carry on my mantle. And so what does he do? He goes back home. And what does he do, do with his oxen and his yoke? He's a farmer. But now he's called the ministry. What does he do with it? He makes a sacrifice out of all of it. He takes the oxen, slaughters them. He takes the yoke that went across their back so he could actually do farming, right? Plow the ground. He, he takes all of that and he burns it as a sacrificial offering to the Lord. But you catch what, that, what he's doing. He's actually saying, 
all right, Yahweh, you are the one that I'm following now, and I'm actually, like, burning every other bridge in my life. I'm burning out all the other options. There's no longer any options for me to walk. It's you and you only. Everything else is merely but a sacrifice to you. I'm giving myself no other option but to follow you, your call upon my life. Just going to say, some have left other bridges unburned. Well, I can kind of do this on the side, and I can do that on the side, and I can, I can mess here, and I can mess there, and, and it's duplicity. Acting one way when you're here, acting another way when you're not. It doesn't honor the body doesn't honor the head, for which Christ has died. I have, I have to say these things. Uh, sorry if you're with us visiting or you're a guest online. <laughs> um, God doesn't mess around with his bride. sacrifice for that. And there are clear portions even in the New Testament because sometimes we think the Old Testament is a bit brutal. <laughs> but in the New Testament there's occasions. And I, I have to say this. And again, I'm not trying to strike unhealthy fear in you, but I have to say it. If you're walking in willful disobedience, there are numerous occasions in the New Testament where people literally die because of their willful unholiness. Ananias and Sapphira lie willfully, intentionally lie to the church about the amounts of money that they were giving to the church. And they die on the spot. And you say, oh, that's silly. You religious people. No. That's reality. That's God's jealousy for his bride. There's other occasions that Paul will speak, even in the moment, in taking the Lord's table. As they're obedient to remember Jesus and take the omens, Paul will say, some of you are sick and some have passed because they've taken the table in an unworthy way. He says that because he wants you to take very seriously how you follow him. And I will go on to say this as well, pastorally. Again, I'm so sorry if you're a guest. But I'm, I'm just kind of tired of fooling around with church. Never having the opportunity to have hard conversations where hard conversations need to happen. But there's been plenty of things over the years that have gone on within this church where there are confidences held by some to pursue willfully. way to say it is you're dancing with death. In the Romans 8 kind of way, but in the way in which God is jealous for his bride. He's purchased up every grace for you to deny the very things that you willfully do and keep confidence with one another in. You're not the church if that's the way you live. That's everything backwards to who we are. So 
So if you haven't burned your plow, if you haven't burned the yoke and the oxen, you better get busy trying to figure that out. Burning every other bridge than the one that stands before you, Jesus himself, can say, come and follow me. Stop dancing with death. Too much death has happened. I'm sick and tired of it. And I, I sense the enemy. You guys don't know. You guys don't know the warfare we go through. Where the enemy says to me, oftentimes, see, what Jesus gives isn't life and life in abundance. You see, that was exaggerated. His word is just exaggerated. Don't take him at his word. Because you see everything else. You see everything else rather than life and life in abundance. And oh man, it's the battle. Battle, battle, battle. Satan, you have no right to say that. For Christ has lived, he's died, he's conquered you. You must be silent and I must take Jesus at his word. He is life and life abundant. However, we can choose to reject that. We're not going to end with the song. <laughs> Put my pen down. I'm not going there. I, uh, I'm just going to be straight. It, like this morning, it's a heightened dissonance of sorts. And I, I will not, I will not, uh, this is not the place to, to praise this is just the place to repent. And folks online, if this at all aligns with you as well, as a part of the church family, I call you to repentance. I call you from a way of death, and I call you into life. I call for all the willful unholiness to be stopped in Jesus' name. I, I I call for all confidence that has taken place with others to keep willful unholiness going. I call that into the light. And may God have mercy on your soul if you choose otherwise. We're just not messing around. God's not messing around with his bride. He will not. He cannot. So, Lord, we come before you, and Father, I stand before you, uh, along with James, as those who are direct representatives of this church family. And, Lord, we, we repent. on behalf of the willful unholiness, on behalf of things done in confidence. On behalf of, Lord, um, just all the ways in which we have lived against your purposes. We repent, and Lord, we claim, we claim in your mighty name that song that we started off with, that there is mercy. There is great mercy. Where there is much sin, there is more mercy. Oh, you, you hold out mercy, but Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you will not enable our sin. You won't give us the opportunity to say, well, he's going to give us mercy, so why not just continue doing what we want to do? But that's not the way your mercy works. Your mercy will not be mocked. It will not be mocked. It won't be trifled with. It won't be used and manipulated. So, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the work that you have done on our behalf to secure us to yourself and to have mercy on us. 
And in Jesus' mighty name, whatever has left been left in the darkness, Holy Spirit, pastorally and openly before the church, we cry out, bring it into the light. Bring it into the light. Make this a place for your presence to be pleased to dwell. Bring it into the light, we pray. Glorify the Lord, my if that hit you weird, <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, but if that was supposed to hit you, let it hit you. Don't mess. If this leaves you, even what I'm saying, like unhealthily in a fearful place, far more self-aware than God-aware, um, Wondering, oh well, then what about this? What about like those are things that that that's kind of working from the flesh. We wanna we wanna receive these things as those who stand on the firm rock of Jesus Christ. But if there are questions, if there's interactions to have, we invite those as we can. You had anything? Well, from here, I know this is ending on a low note. Sometimes with church family stuff, that's what we got to do. Got to end on a low note. That's just, oh, that's just as pleasing to him at times. And ending on a high note, 